correctly with the correct amount. Hello, Gamer Nation, and welcome back to the Roll for Initiative podcast. This is episode number four. I am your host, DM Vincent, along with another host, DM Jason. Jason, how are you doing tonight? Hey, Vincent, I'm doing great tonight. How are you? I'm doing fabulous. Well, it looks like we've had a couple episodes up, and we've got a lot of feedback, and uh, what do you think so far? Yeah, it's been really gratifying to, to hear from people from the different forums, uh, from the old school AD&D players, and even some of the people that are discovering it. So that's great to have everybody. And I'd just like to thank uh, the D20 Radio Network. Uh, they uh, have uh, put our feed on their uh, their website pretty much, and we're part of them. So you can visit them at d20radio.com, and you can listen to their flagship show, Order 66 podcast. And uh, they have a couple other D&D podcasts, 4th edition, uh, Radio Free Hamlet, and The Power Source. You can go check those yeah. out, they're 4th edition, though. Yeah, no, I, I actually I listen to Radio Free Hamlet. I, they're up to, uh, I think, Adventure 36 right now. Yeah. They're doing one called Know Your Role, <laughs> which I found actually really interesting. They did a show this week about encounter design, and uh, it's something that plays out really differently you know, for 4th edition, and... Uh, you know, I'll have to admit that when I listen to it, I do a little bit of cringing and waving my tiny fists at the sky and <laughs> screaming, that's, you know, not how you play, but then that is how you play, because I also play 4th edition, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's really useful tips that they give, and uh, actually I found a lot of things pretty useful in there that I, that I might uh, be able to adapt just when thinking about how to create some of the, um, not encounters, because we don't do encounters, obviously. No, we, no, no, no. We, but, but when creating some of the things that are present in my adventures. So it's a, gra- it's a great episode, a great adventure, number 36 from uh, Radio Free Hamlet this week. Yes, as as of this recording, that is uh, episode thirty six. Uh, I don't like I don't play fourth edition, but I do like listening just to you know get some ideas and they're they're really good. They have a good rapport, so uh, I like to listen. To yeah, them. I I, I kind of like getting mad at fourth edition sometimes. Anyways, it's fun. <laughs> it's 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 like a lefty listening to Rush Limbaugh or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, um, we actually have two different feeds right now. Uh, Jason, you are our editor, so uh, why don't you uh, tell everyone about the two different feeds so they can understand what I'm talking about? Sure. So if you are listening to this, then you obviously figured out how to get one feed or the other. <laughs> or maybe not, because you could be listening to it uh, on the web page itself. But if you go to iTunes, uh, the main feed we have listed as the enhanced feed, mm. and that's a, uh, you know, not to get too technical about it, but it's an AAC file so that it has enhanced features like chapter markings and you know artwork when you get to the different sections so you can jump ahead and jump back. So if you're listening right now on a Zune or an iPod or an iPhone or anything else uh, that can play those kind of files and you haven't noticed, you can actually skip forward a chapter or skip back a chapter to uh, get to the parts that you missed or that you're most interested in. Now, if you don't have the ability to listen to those files, uh, some 
portable players may not play them, or maybe they don't play in your browser, we do have the basic MP3 feed, which is what is playing if you just hit play on the rfipodcast.com, if there's a, you hit play on the button there. Or if you go to the basic RSS feed, you can pull that down. So whichever one works for you, they're both the same file size, more or less. They're both the same audio quality. The only difference is the chaptering and some of those enhanced artwork features. So take the one that works for you. Uh, let us know if there's a problem. Hopefully everything's working great. Yeah, we had to resolve a few issues with some of the fees, but we fixed everything, and you should be able to listen to everything and enjoy our wonderful show. Speaking of our wonderful Jason, uh, wonderful Jason, yes, Jason, you're wonderful too. That's me. I'm 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 that wonderful yes. Jason. Speaking of that, that can go on the blooper reel. Speaking of um, our show, we have almost hit 500 downloads. Well, hey, what do you know? There's a lot of towns in Iowa that I'm near where I'm from that are much, much smaller than that, so... <laughs> wow. Greetings, old one. We seek your advice. Excellent. Shit by the fire, we shall talk. Welcome to Sage Advice. All right, folks, and this will be our uh, new uh, uh, segment. We're going to call it Sage Advice. Do you remember Sage Advice, Jason? Yeah, Sage Advice was uh, one of my favorite columns in Dragon Magazine. Everything from the artwork itself all, all the way down to, uh, you know, looking forward to it every week. So, unfortunately, we don't have the the sage himself with us huh. anymore. No. But uh, we will do our best to uh, channel a little bit of how we feel. You know, people might have spoken at one time, although I'm sure we will not be able to speak with anywhere near the authority or actually even accuracy no. <laughs> of, uh, of of any of the real, you know, great pioneers of the game. Not at all. I mean, rest in peace, the father of D&D. There's a nice little article I put up about him on the website, which is rfipodcast.com. And you can drop us an email at rfistaff at gmail.com. But what we will do with Sage Advice is we'll do our best to uh, talk to some of the uh, letters that we get, listener questions. Uh, when we don't know something, we'll try to throw it back to the forums. And uh, when we act like we know something and we get it totally wrong, we will talk about that next week when the forums give us a spanking for it. <laughs> and people will, because that's what all D&D fans are about, is just you know correcting each other. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's, it's true. That's why I play. Yes, and um, we uh, speaking about website and articles, we were looking for some staff writers to uh, add some fluff to the website, right, Jason? I don't want fluff. I want good stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, no, we are. We we uh, so um, you know, there's a lot of great discussions that go on on all the various forums. There's people that have amazing uh, AD and D first edition websites out there. And by the way, we're trying to put links to some of those on our site. Uh, so if there's one that we're missing, let us know. But uh, with all the great discussions and thoughts and writers out there, we thought that we'd give people an opportunity to write slightly longer form articles if there's something they're interested in, whether it's uh, opinion type pieces, whether it's new spells. Uh, you know, Think of it the same way that if you were reading Dragon Magazine back in the 80s and the early 90s, the kind of guest editorials and writers that would come in. Just uh, send us something. We will uh, talk with you about uh, the quality, you know, what we're looking for, and hopefully we'll be able to provide a, a forum for people, or not forum, <laughs> an outlet. The forums are there. We want people to stay on the forums, but an outlet for people to write slightly longer form editorial and articles. 
Uh, yes, definitely. And uh, we also have a new feature. Um, you can contact us on the website uh, via our contact form if you're interested in mm-hmm. becoming a writer, author. And Jason, you installed uh, Google Voicemail on the website, I noticed. And why don't you explain to our folks how that works, because I'm unfamiliar with that. Okay, so that's pretty simple. It's just you click the, uh, I think it says talk to us, call us, something like that. It's on the right-hand side. It's a big button that you can't miss. And when you do that, it'll ask you to put in your phone number and your name. It will then call you, and it'll route you to our voicemail, uh, and you'll just have an opportunity to leave a message. So you're not actually calling a live person. It actually watches for anybody clicking from that link and sends them straight to voicemail so that it will record your comments or questions or whatever else. So click that, put in your phone number. Your phone will ring almost instantly, so be ready to talk. Just uh, leave your information. And when you do, send us an email to let us know you've done that or say your email address on the message so that we'll know who it was because we want to contact. We want to make sure we contact anybody before we go and play their voice on the air just to make sure that everything is okay. Yes, definitely. And don't worry, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you can call that number as Jason and I will not be there to pick it up, so don't worry about waking us up in our sleep. Right. Okay, and oh, I got a couple, I got an email this week from Todd. He was telling us that he really enjoyed the show so far, and he wanted us to talk about the Wand of Wonder. I think we'll cover that in a future show. I think we have that on our plans. Yeah, yeah, I saw that email. It should be good. Um, I have to confess, I didn't really uh, know much about the Wand of Wonder before, so I'll have to go study up a little bit, and then we'll uh, go into that. Wand of Wonder is lovely. Yeah, yeah, Todd, if you want to tell us anything specific that you're interested in uh, about that, let us know so that we don't just kind of go off the reservation on our own. And uh, from the D20 Radio Network forums, Buzz XF, uh, he gave us a nice five-star review on iTunes, so I'd like to thank him for that personally, and uh, we appreciate that. Yes, that was excellent. That was excellent. Nice to have the first one be a positive one, and uh, hopefully more will follow because those always help. That's right. If you can uh, take a stop by iTunes and give us a five-star rating, we will read it on the air with your name so, as well. Uh, and, uh, and also on the D20 Radio Network forums, old school comment in the forum explaining his real-life explanation of plate armor. And yeah, see, that's not. what I almost stepped on your feet over trying to get to, because I, I really, <laughs> that's my favorite uh, feedback we've gotten so far. Yeah, yeah, I saw you were all um, interested in that. Those links were excellent, and the video was great, too, that he had sent up. Yeah, so um, for anybody who didn't see it, basically he came in and talked about the difference between the myth of plate armor that most people think of, which is that a, a knight couldn't even get up off the ground if he fell off of his horse, and what it was really like. And he sent us a great video um, from a British documentary. I'm not sure which one it was, but showing somebody recreating what it was like to wear the sort of armor you would normally wear. And, you know, it's really not too different from modern combat body armor. Or, like I was discussing in the forums, I also i am a biker. I ride motorcycles. And so when I go on long rides... Uh, I'm pretty well protected. You know, I wear a lot of Kevlar uh, plated pants and uh, jackets, so it's kind of similar. So I could easily imagine what it's like to be wearing something that's simply plated in all the sensitive spots. Hmm. And I wasn't too surprised to see him say that because I remember when the Unearthed Arcana came out, they added a couple of armor types 
into the unearthed arcana. In addition to plate mail, they added full plate and dropped the armor class by one for each, so made each one one better. So you've got plate mail, which... Um, oh, boy, I'm going to get this wrong. Is it three without a shield, two with a shield? Yeah, I believe so. Let's say it is. Okay, so plate mail, if it's three, then field plate would be two, and then full plate would be one. And I do remember as a teenager looking this up and thinking it was a little bit odd because it seemed like they were going towards something that might not have been historically accurate, but I didn't know enough at the time to be sure if it was or it wasn't. And I think I would, based on what I've looked at in the book that we talked about a couple of weeks ago in uh, Cameron Stone's Arms and Armor, looking through the type of armor in there and looking at the discussion from old school, I think I would avoid anything like the idea of quote-unquote full plate as being something that a character would actually wear in an adventure and stick with the plate mail, which as he pointed out very rightly, does afford a lot of freedom, doesn't necessarily have a great amount of encumbrance. And I think that Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson did a really good job of codifying that in the rules and not creating too much encumbrance for it. So I think what he really did was do a good job of reinforcing the way that the rules are set up and also explaining to somebody who was reading just what this stuff is like. So it was a great piece of feedback. Yeah, we appreciate it. And anyone else wants to leave feedback, go to the dragonfoot.org forum or the D20 Radio Network forum and find us and uh, leave us some feedback there. Uh, also in the forums, uh, I think it's Damien Salta. Is that how you pronounce it, Jason, I think, right? That's how I pronounce it. Yeah. I don't He's know how Damien Salta pronounces it, but that's <laughs> how I would. That's how I do, too. He uh, actually called himself a new school gamer. Hmm. And he's come yeah. back... Uh, I shouldn't say come back. He's actually transitioned over to first edition to give it a try with his group. So he's been asking me a bunch of questions and PMing me on the D20 Radio Network forums. And uh, he's actually going forward with the Osric edition of uh, first edition. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, I, I let him do the file. He's, he asked me a whole bunch of questions, and he's all pumped about it. So uh, let us know how that goes. Email us and tell us how your first adventure went. Yeah, I'm glad to hear he's using the Osric edition because, I mean, in addition to being a first edition gamer and a big fan of the fact that they're doing that. I'm also a big proponent of open source computing, and I see Osric is sort of in that spirit, so it's really nice to see people. You know, I said a long time ago, not a, long, a few episodes ago, <laughs> that, you know, DIY is something I really love, uh, you know, coming from being a punk and everything like that. So it's great to see people keeping that ethos alive, and that's what I think Osric really does. So I would love to hear how Damien Solta does with this, so please uh, keep us informed, keep us up on how that goes. Definitely. And uh, Full On Gamer and the D20 Radio Network forums gave us a uh, little tip how to get some books that are hard to find in case you don't want to go online to uh, uh, Noble Knight or one of the places we listed as well. He has a little store called The Hobbit. It's in North Carolina. And they uh, help all gamers from all around the United States uh, and even out of the country as far as finding these printed books. He gave us a phone number and the address. I will give you the phone number, 910, uh, sorry, 910 area code, 864-3155. Give them a call. Um, they cater to gamers. Uh, obviously, they're Eastern Standard Time hours, so anything after that, <laughs> they'll be closed. It's a great tip. Thank you. 
Thank you. And Norse, is that Norsk? Norsk? Norsk. Norsk Drake, yeah, yeah, Norsk Drake, and I, I like that comment. It was kind of funny because he wrote in to say that the uh, he thought the website reminded him of a cleaner version of the website that is owned by some company. I don't know, Wizard something. Yeah, and uh, I don't know, they they make some games. Anyways, uh, I thought that was really cool. Although I'm going to be perfectly honest, our website was a very quick uh, toss up that I did, so I really just stuck with keeping it basic so people could find their way around. But, hey, I'm glad that it's working for them. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yes, and I've been adding some content and some links, and Jason and I have been going back and forth trying to make the website look full and alive. So, Yeah, So and, and again, this is where the community can help because this is fun. This is just for everybody, and we want it to be everybody's. So go ahead and participate and contribute. And AV Jack from the D20 Radio Forums, uh, was asking about an article from Dragon Magazine entitled, I think it's entitled, Longer Weapons Were Better in the First Round of Combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. He he wanted to know from you, Jason, if maybe you can try to track that down and give him that article because he was looking about that. Uh, yep, I will try to track that down. I didn't do it before the show, but I'll put it in the show notes. Excellent. And from the dragonsfoot.org forums, uh, we have Blackstone, Sieg, H.J. Martin, 70, Preparos, Hawk, Druvas, and White Pony all said they enjoyed the show very much, and they want us to keep putting out episodes, and Destroys You a Lot from the forums actually took the time to blog us. Did you have a chance to read yeah, that, Jay? Yeah, I did. It was great. Destroy You a Lot. Uh, it was, was a great that? blog post, and I showed it off to all of my friends, and they called me a nerd. Thank you. Well, we are nerds, so too bad. Yeah. Feature one. Okay, that's going to bring us into our feature segment this week for uh, spell research. It's always been known that magic users, after a while, will always get tired of the spells that they have in their spell book, so eventually somebody's going to want to research a spell. And if you open your DMG guide, and that will tell you how to research a spell. But we will got read from the book verbatim, because that's boring. We will talk about how spell research is actually done. So, Jason, you were uh, talking to me earlier before the show uh, how you would handle your spell research, because you've never actually done it in the past. So, Yeah, it's it's really interesting. We ended up getting, uh, we were talking about letters before, we got a, an interesting letter in that I'll go into in a moment. Okay. But uh, he was talking about spells that have been created in his campaign by, you know, over a number of years. And how they went about researching them, etc. And it got me thinking about spell research and the idea of using it to learn spells that you haven't been able to find otherwise. Okay. Which, of course, is a very standard part of the game, but one that I just never personally had really uh, explored or used. So before I go into that, and like you said, we don't want to rehash too much of basic rules here, but I'll give just a quick overview, uh, a reminder, that for magic users, in order to cast a spell, they need to obviously be of high enough level to cast that spell. They need to be of high enough intelligence to have learned the spell so that when they made their role, they were successful and found out that that spell was something they could know. But also, the most important immediate issue is that spell has to actually be in their spell book. And magic users can have a little traveling spell book to take with them, or they can have their huge tome uh, that's back in their library, wherever they keep that. Mm. 
In order to get that into the spellbook, though, is the question. So what I've always done in my campaigns before was that the magic user would either have learned the spell from his master or another sufficiently high-level magic user who was willing to teach it to him, or he or she would have found the spell in a scroll and copied it down and gone through all of the rules that go with that. Right. What's really interesting here is the idea of saying, I can't find that scroll, I can't find anybody who can teach me this spell, but I want to learn it. And the question is then, what do you do? How do you actually go about researching such a thing? So in the Dungeon Master's Guide, like you said on page 115, there's a whole section on spell research that describes how it's done, or mostly what it costs, and those types of things. But what was fascinating, and I put this into uh, the show notes when we talked about magic users, is the idea of actually figuring out how that research happens. In, I don't know what year it was, but in Dragon Number 82, Bruce Hurd wrote a great article called uh, Spells Between the Covers, where he gives a lot of details. Uh, well, it's called Details for Delving into Magical Research. <laughs> and I won't go into all the specifics. In fact, I'll just we'll point people to that article. If you can't find it... Um, Maybe we'll, we'll put we'll, it on the web- website. We'll just uh, put a piece of it, an excerpt from it, so you can get an idea. Yeah, yeah, we can, we can summarize some things like that. But what was really cool about this article is that he gave a great piece of flavor to this in describing what books you would actually need to find if, and I be, when I say books you would need to find, I mean books that your character would need to acquire within the game in order to research certain spells. And uh, in classic AD&D fashion, he gave a percentile role that you could figure to um, determine what book you might be able to find at any given seller. Now, obviously, as a DM, you can use that role, or you can simply pick them. But uh, let's have some fun. Go ahead, roll a D100, and tell me what you get, and I'll tell you what book you find in this bookseller. You want me to roll the D100? Yeah, roll it. Let's see what let's see what book is present at the bookseller. Fifty six. Fifty six. The book that you have come across is by Leomund, and everybody's going to know Leomund of Leomund's Tiny Hut. Uh, this book is called The Transcendental Impenetrabilities by Leomund. This this is the book that you will need to find if you want to research the spells Leomund's Tiny Hut. Minor Globe of Invulnerability, Globe of Invulnerability, or Prismatic Sphere. So you actually just rolled up probably the most classic of all the tomes, because, you know, of course, Leomund is one of the most famous of the magic users in the first edition AD&D world, and Prismatic Sphere is a spell that was actually brought over almost verbatim from Jack Vance's Dying Earth books. So it is such an old spell that actually not only predates AD&D, it predates D&D, it predates Gary Gygax even thinking about making a game about magic. So wonderful book to, book to choose. Oh, uh, that's really cool. All right, keep, yeah, keep going. Roll another roll. Let's see what else we get. All right, let me just get my dice here. 72. 72. 
Oh, I can't pronounce him. It's Mchazentl, Variations on the Visual Perception. Hmm. You'll need this book if you want to research hypnotism, hallucinatory terrain, paralyzation, or veil. Hmm. So you see we're getting kind of a, uh, a theme going with each of these books. There's Now, these books, I should be really clear, the, finding this book does not mean that it has the spell in it. What these books are, and I'll just go into a couple of others. Um, oh, roll. Let's 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 roll for it. What else? Give me one more. One more roll. Okay, hold on a second. Ah, thirty-one. Thirty-one. Legendary of great arms. Sorry, legendary of great arms and fabulous heroes by Kass. Armor, phantom armor, stone skin, Ooh. protection from normal missiles, shield, and force cage. So, so what these books are is they're they're arcane um, tomes. Tomes. What's the word? Academic tomes yeah. that discuss the principles behind these different types of magic, but don't actually provide the magic spells. And you know, depending on how your understanding of how magic spells work on paper, that's another story. So, but Jason, just these are the things you need. Yes. These these books would be like if I went to my local library and I was doing a research paper. These would be books on various topics for me to combine into the topic I want to write about. Exactly. Huh. So you're going to need to do this type of research in order to find out how to cast that spell. So this actually gives you all the books. And I think I think we we have to put that table up because it's just too good. Yeah. I, well, I, yeah. We we just got to put that table up. Yeah, I think we could do it. So. So that so that's that's the the, uh, the the official Dragon Magazine uh, discussion of spell research, but what uh, so this listener Jason, no coincidence or is coincidence no no relation uh, from from Leeds in England so very far away so we're not related, uh, but he sent in a spell book of spells that have been created by the different members of his gaming group over the years. They've been gaming together for a number of years and have created uh, a lot of really fascinating spells. So um, I thought I would just share two of them oh. with uh, with our listeners. Okay, what's that uh, first one? Uh, I think I'll, I'll look, actually I will look on the list here. Oh, Native Tongue. That's, yes. that's kind of interesting. So yeah, so, so let's uh, start with that because it's a good low-level spell and it goes into the next question which is... Um, I think one of the more difficult and therefore fun parts of spell research as a DM is try or as a player is trying to determine what's level appropriate because the Dungeon Master's Guide says that you need to be, cer be certain to do something level appropriate, but this is first edition AD&D and they expect you as a player and as a DM to actually be able to think for yourself so they don't spell it out in you know, absolute... Monopoly-style game instructions. Hmm. So how do you do that? And I think this is a really good example. So uh, Native Tongue, hmm. l first level, it's got verbal, somatic, and material components. No range, as you'll see in a moment why. Casting time of one segment, which if you're going to do a first-level spell, you should keep the casting time low. We're going to talk about that later. Uh, duration of six turns per level of the caster, so that's one hour per level of the caster, no saving throw, and the area of effect is on the caster themselves. This spell enables the caster to adopt the native accent of the area he or she happens to be in at the time. 
It also grants knowledge of local idioms and colloquialisms so the caster may pass as a native. Note that this spell does not allow knowledge of a foreign language, merely the accent, though somebody reading a notice in a foreign tongue, even if they cannot understand it, will sound like a native. When coupled with a tongue spell, this spell does allow the caster to to pass as a native speaker in a foreign country. The material component is a piece of a local, a hair, nail clipping, etc. So... I, I love this spell, and I'm going to introduce it into our campaign. Uh, I'm going to find a way to have it on a scroll. And you know, when I, when I think of this spell, Jason, I think of a best example I can think of this. Imagine yourself being in Hawaii, right? You're on the mm-hmm. beach. You're there for the first time. You're, you know, whatever. You cast this spell. It automatically gives you the local lore, and it gives you that accent and that... You don't really have, they have their own language there, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and their own words. So this would give you that ability to pass as one of them, so they wouldn't be walking around calling you a howly. Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) I I think this, it was relevant for me to mention that uh, Jason, who sent this in, is from Leeds, because uh, being from England makes a person much more aware of the variance in local idioms and accents, etc. I mean, obviously we have a wide number of accents here in America as well. Just listen to you and listen to me. We only live, you know, a, a, an hour away from each other, but already you can hear our accents. But yeah. it's much yeah. more uh, oh. part of the culture and more uh, obvious when you get over to the British Isles. Yeah. It raises really good points, though, within the game, because until I read the spell, I hadn't really thought about the idea of using local idioms and customs. Um, you said lore. I don't think this one actually uh, provides you with the ability to know any of the local lore, but you would know the colloquialism. So, for example, if you uh, were tossed into a part of uh, East End London, you might know some of the Cockney rhyming slang. I mean, maybe that's embarrassing. I shouldn't even bring that up. But you know what I mean. You you would know the types of things that people say and what they mean, though maybe not the lore. So, like Brooklyn, the, like Brooklyn. There you go. All right. Yeah. Uh, what What's also really good about it, aside from the fact that it brings into the game the whole idea of making sure that you're passing for a local as opposed to just speaking the language, right. is it brings in the idea of what do you do when you are speaking another language? So if you're using tongues and you go to the Pomarge and you are speaking with an orc in orcish, how do you know that you're using the correct idioms, the correct flavor of orcish? And so now with native tongue being a spell that's available, I like the idea of what you can do in a game when you don't have the spell. Suddenly it gives me a chance to throw all kinds of extra chaos in. Oh, okay. It's more of like a dialect type thing for a language. It can help that way, maybe? Maybe even all the way up to dialect, yes. Um, I I don't know. I I probably would not rule in a game that something as different as, say, um, a patois could be understood. But I would take it all the way to uh, accents and idioms. And, of course, the other reason I wanted to bring this up is because it's a very good example of creating a level-appropriate spell. I think it's pretty easy to argue that this is appropriate for a first-level magic user spell. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I could really say, I couldn't quantify or codify 
what it takes to be second, third, fourth level. I'd really have to sit down and look at that, and I'd love to hear from people um, about their opinions on that or what kind of sources they have to uh, back those up. There's probably mm-hmm. some great discussions that have already happened in the forums that I just haven't found. Yeah, and if you have some spells that you've made up, just send it to us, staff at gmail.com, so we can look them over. And uh, so the other one, I'm not going to spend quite as much time on because I know that you know we don't want to make three-hour podcasts out of this whole thing. But I want to focus on a sixth-level spell that his group also sent in. Oh. It's called Aliandra's. I think it's pronounced Aliandra. Aliandra's marvelous reconnaissance. Oh, okay. It's a, if it's a divination spell, uh, it's a sixth level. So now we've gone to a very, very high-level magic user spell. Again, he's got verbal, somatic, and material components. Its range uh, is up to a mile. And no saving throw, again, because this is a very useful spell to have. It's, again, it's not combat. These are spells for the fact that AD&D is a game of role-playing and of adventure and of discovery and exploration that occasionally involves getting hit with a sword very hard. Hmm. So uh, this... Uh, spell is a superior version of the spell Local Knowledge, which I think might have been also uh, from his book. Uh, This magic enables the caster to gain more detailed information regarding a strange and unfamiliar locale. Hmm. The magician need only recite the spell, and upon completion will have a mental map of an area 440 yards in diameter per level, from a designated point up to one mile away from the caster's current location. This mental map will be etched into the caster's memory and can be recalled perfectly by the caster for up to one week per level of the caster, after which point the caster can recall as much of it as he or she might normally be able to remember if relying on their own mental faculties. Uh, And it goes into some details about uh, specific colors that are used to... Uh, indicate how different areas, um, what they are. So, for example, in the mental map that's created, they'll see government offices as bronze, they'll see taverns as olive, etc. Some good flavor text there. Wow. And uh, it allows them to actually mark areas of interest on this mental map. He doesn't describe what would happen if you tried to actually write this map out, um, and I think since this is something that was created uh, you know, just from a, a home campaign, I would open that up to people to try to figure out for themselves what they thought was appropriate. But it's a very cool spell. It's something that not only is level appropriate, it's going all the way up to level 6 in order to have this kind of large amount of useful information, but again, it really highlights what you should be doing in your game to keep information from your players and what you should be doing to ensure that they have to find this out. Because if you're playing the sort of game where you just hand over the map and you just tell people what's where, there's no need for a spell like this. And so it reminds me as a DM or anybody reading this just how much you need to keep your players down at ground level so they have to discover things in whatever fashion they have. This is really cool. I'm thinking uh, like a map from like a online game. Think of that map in the corner. That's would be like in your guys. In, in, really, that's what would be in the person's brain, pretty much. Yeah, for for uh, however many weeks 
uh, I mean, to I don't know what level. I, I'm not a walking encyclopedia, so I'm not going to pretend to know off the top of my head what level uh, magic user has to be before they can cast a sixth level spell. But it's pretty high, and so I, I like the idea that at the point, by the time you get to the point of being able to do this, you're going to be able to use it for some time, for for a number of weeks, which is which is very useful. Uh, definitely. This is a great spell to have. Like you said, you don't give the players your map. Uh, actually, it'd be kind of fun just to think about that, you know, making them roll. I actually could see some rolls here to remember certain things after a certain amount of time if they come back to, say, a town or something. Mm-hmm. I, this, I can have a lot of fun with that one. Yeah, I think I, what I'd probably do with this spell is to work in... Uh, he's got no saving throw uh, required, or obviously you no. Know, no saving throw against this, but... Uh, if I'm reading it right, there's not necessarily anything in there about mistakes that could happen. So I would probably put some roles in there for the possibility of incorrect information because mm-hmm. that can add a lot of fun to the game too. Yeah, definitely. The conditions when he casts a spell, you know, his mental state, you know, all those things can play a factor into that. So, so basically, this all opens me personally up to a whole new part of the game that I had never gone into before, the idea of spell research. And I'd, I'd like to hear you know, from people who have spent a lot of time doing that. I think it's something that I will be uh, devoting a fair amount of my energies to as a DM from now on, is trying to really uh, look at spells, not just in the sense that there's a list of things in a book that somebody can do, but actually try to think about what it takes to create one and what it would be like to uh, make something level appropriate. It's going to be a fun exercise for me. Uh, yeah, it takes uh, some good amount of research, a good amount of space, and a whole lot of gold to make some of the spells you want to do. <laughs> and there's a big, big, big like modifier, the role you have to make to do it, to learn it. Uh, you can refer to the DM guide for that. We won't go over that because, you know, we want you to do some reading on your own and interpret it how you interpret it and run it how you run it. Uh, speaking of, I have a player in my campaign, Jason, that is actually researching how to increase the power of Magic Missile for his character. So. Interesting. So it'll be a higher level spell, obviously. He wants to uh, increase the power of it, pretty much. And uh, I told him, well, well, first things first, write it up. Yeah. You know, that's actually, it's interesting because I had a uh, situation arise in my game recently where I needed a spell to exist that didn't exist. Um, I needed to have a spell that would essentially, I called it greater forget. Because, you know, you've got the spell forget already, which can allow, which can wipe out a people, person's memory for a short period of time. But what was happening was we had to introduce a new PC into the game. We had a new player joining the group, and I was looking for a way to bring him in to the adventure. So in order to do that, uh, I, the the rest of the party was already out at this haunted house, and I needed him to join them. So some of the local NPCs in the town gave him a whole story about uh, needing to go out and quote unquote rescue their uh, insane relative, who of course was really the assassin that was with the party, and to get him out there. Uh, so when they went out to do this, and they were basically trying to set up a whole situation that I won't go into, but when they got out there, one of the things that the NPC had to do was to figure out how to make some sort of uh, 
excuses for what was going on, and it simply was going to be too difficult to try to uh, weave a very, very intricate story. So her plan was to actually wipe the memories of all of the PCs so they would forget everything that they had learned so far, so she would be able to essentially uh, get the assassin out of there, take them away from this, keep them from ever learning what was going on, but the problem was there was no such spell as greater forget. So I just did a little bit of uh, deus ex machina or fiat lux or something in Latin that a DM does and just said, okay, she's going to do this spell. And it was actually kind of fun because I got everybody to go stand in a corner. And the idea was that she said she was going to be casting some sort of, um, I don't even know what it was. It's something that sounded really good. Like she was going to cure his insanity and so she got all the player characters she said i need you to all stand in a tight circle over there away from him so you don't get any of this spell on you that i'm going to cast only on him and they very naively all grouped together you know when somebody tells all of your players to get together i'm going to cast a spell don't just don't. Your DM is messing with you and i was messing with them and of course at that point she cast greater, greater forget and they forgot everything they'd known so far. Looking back now, what I should say, what level of spell would that have been? Was it realistic? Did it fit in? And those types of things. So this is a wonderful tool for me now to start doing. Huh. All right, well, we'll have to look into that a little bit more. We want to hear what you have to say, staff at gmail.com. That's going to wrap up the spell research for this week, so uh, let us know what you think. Suddenly, your torch goes out. You fumble around the darkness to relight your torch. When you do, you look up and see the creature feature theater. Whoa, it's alive. We're back in the creature feature theater. Great to be back in here, Jason. What do you think? Creature feature theater is one of my favorite. I really like what you picked this week. Yeah, I was uh, doing some research this week during our show notes, and uh, I found this perfect creature. If you turn, if you take out your Dragon magazine from 1980, Dragon number 44. Okay, let me go get that. All right. I've got it. Excellent. And it's you can turn it to page 89, and it's the Cryo Serpent. This giant, think of this, I'll, I'll describe this creature for you really quick. This giant frost snake. I mean, if huge. Think of, uh, if, you've, if you've ever seen Lair of the White Worm, which if you were a goth in the 80s, you had to see, so I expect you to have seen it. Uh, it's, it reminds me of that a little bit. It's 50 feet long. And I believe that's, what is that, 5 foot in diameter? I can't see sure, that. yeah, yes. maybe. Yes, it is. Yes, yes. 5, 5 feet in diameter. Uh, it has an armor class of 1. Its hit dice is actually a 12. So it's a high-level creature. Yeah, this is good, because yeah. we haven't been talking about enough uh, high-level stuff, and I'm glad to do that. And uh, this creature is not going to be something you're throwing against your first-level characters, because you'll just munch them up, and that would be the end of your campaign. Yeah, I mean, although, you know, like we said before, you don't have to be level-appropriate, so if they're stupid enough to go somewhere that this creature is likely to be, hey, total party kill... Yeah, speaking of which, where can you find this monster? Well, it's going to be in the Arctic climates, where a few other monsters will be, because it's going to be so cold. And what else do you find in those areas? Frost giants. Oh, boy. So you're surrounded by frost giants and giant snakes. What are you going to do, Jason? Uh, run back to the tropics. 
That perfect. Okay, that ends the segment. No, I'm just kidding, folks. <laughs> yeah, no, this this is a very Nordic, uh, very appropriate for a very Nordic campaign. Uh, and if you're coming up against a creature like this, you also are going to be thinking about things like night versus day, what time of the year it is, because one of the features of this particular monster is its aversion to light. So if you're up in, if if you if you're playing on a world that's on a globe, because maybe you've decided to play on a flat Earth, I'm going to talk about that when we get to the library. Mm-hmm. But if you're playing on a globe that does have similar features to the Earth and has white nights and um, has uh, black days, I guess. I don't really know what the opposite of white nights is. But if you're there during the time when the sun is always out, you'll be fairly safe because this creature hates the light. But if you're there during the time when it's almost always night, you're in a lot of danger if there's a cryoserpent around. Uh, this this cryoserpent is a high intelligence creature, which means, depending on how you run your games, maybe it might be able to communicate with the players. It may not. Yeah, um, it'll be human or better than human. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't have any psionic ability, so you have to decide, is it going to have a language that the characters can speak? I don't know if the article went into its language at all. Did it? Uh, no, it didn't, but it does uh, follow the rule of chaotic evil alignment, so we assume that it probably could speak the chaotic evil alignment tongue. We assume. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't really play the alignment languages that way. Actually, I don't play the alignment languages because I think they're bunk, honestly. <laughs> well, um, I mean, I understand okay. bunko. That's, that's cool. Uh, okay. I, I understand the, the concept behind them is similar to a thieves' camp, etc. But for, for, for me, for my game, I think that alignment languages, are they're stretching... Uh, I was going to say they're stretching reality and believability too much, like a magic missile doesn't, but you know what I mean. Uh, but I, what I probably would do is treat it similar to how you treat dragons uh, in terms of the kind of language that they can speak. And I would not have, we said tropics versus Arctic, I would not have a party that was based, say, in a very uh, tropical land like the Sea Princes or something, know its language unless they had an awfully good reason for having that kind of lore in their party. Well, I usually think of the alignment languages as like caveman talk. Just basic mm-hmm. grunts and basic hand signals. Though the snake doesn't have hands, but you get the right, idea. Right, so if you've got caveman talk, which cavemen are speaking the good and which ones are speaking the evil? Uh, the ones with the brown fur on them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just, I can't, I can't think of any rationale for chaotic good language that works in my vision of the world. Well, that's probably a reason why they no longer continued that when they went on with the further editions, but I still enjoy using it once in a while. Well, what are some of the ways, I mean, not to get too much off the cryo-serpent, but what are some of the ways that you've used uh, alignment language in your in your game? Uh, I've used, like, uh, like, hand signals, and I've described it as he's speaking a foreign tongue, and, like, you understand every other word, and sometimes I'll write things out, mm-hmm. and I'll, like, pre-write these, all these things out in case they have to, which time sometimes screws up, because if you don't know what the players are going to ask, you're screwed, but uh, sometimes you can write certain things out, like, you understand him saying, hissing the following, and, you know, you jumble the words up, and that's how I'd probably handle that. So maybe you're treating it a little bit like secret Masonic rites or yeah. something. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I can, I can, I can accept that uh, reasoning. I'm still not going to use it. <laughs> that's that's fine. <laughs> but anyway, so the cryo serpent. Uh, what special attacks does he have, Jay? 
Uh, so the cryoserpent, this, this is pretty scary. The special attacks are very magical. And they're, they're spell-like powers. That doesn't mean that they're spells. And I'd have to go into a little bit more reading on here to see exactly uh, what that means in terms of saving versus spells or having magic resistance. But the special attacks, first of all, they have a lot to do with Ataluk's freezing sphere. So if the cryoserpent extends its tongue and touches water with it, it can freeze the surface solid to a depth, I'm reading here, to a depth of six inches over an area of 12,000 square feet. And if you're already in a freezing area, it's just going to stay that way. If you're in a local, if the local temperature is above the freezing point, uh, then it'll last for 12 rounds. Uh, but what this is particularly fearsome for is if you're in a ship and the cryoserpent comes near your ship, it can freeze all of the water around it and just hold you in place. Nice. Um, the second thing that it can do is to fire a beam or a ray of cold 120 feet long and one foot wide. It does 48 points of damage if you fail. Your sa- oh, there's your save. Save versus spell. Um, they use it most commonly against white dragons, it says, and Rimuraz. And then the third of these is, in terms of just attacks, is to launch a small four-inch ball of ice, a range of 120 feet with great accuracy, which explodes when it strikes anything. And it does four to 24 points of damage. These are very, very fearsome direct attacks. But the scariest thing uh, that seems to be in here is their ability to, uh, with their with their eyes to, um, where did it go? It was really scary and I totally lost it, so I guess I wasn't that scared. <laughs> uh, beings with a four hit dice or four levels or below met with the creature's freaky gaze. Uh, has to make freaky a gaze. Yeah. Saving throw versus uh, paralyzation. Now they're paralyzed, pretty much. Yeah, so that that's that would definitely be the, scare, the fr- most frightening thing because if you're coming up against something this bad and the first thing that happens is that you're paralyzed, it's it's not going to, it doesn't bode well. Well, but at the level you're probably meeting this thing, you wouldn't have to really worry about that because you're going to be a super uber bad guy. So maybe I mean, if you're lucky, if your DM has uh, set set something very level appropriate for you, uh, you know. And the, the good thing here is that the cryo serpent is going to be susceptible to what you think it would be, which is heat based attacks, fire attacks. Uh, it's going to be very resistant, if not completely resistant, to cold based attacks. It's uh, the sort of creature that it, it's almost cartoony in some ways, in the sense that it's it's got powers. It's 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 very um, elemental to a certain extent. But something this fearsome, I don't think you'd have time until after the uh, cryo serpent was dealt with to reflect on any of its more humorous character characteristics. Okay. Well, uh, if you want to use this creature, we'll post up its uh, statistics on their website, and you can go take a peek at it. And we have a picture we'll put up with it too. Jason will take care of that. And uh, yeah. you can oh, one one more thing, last thing I wanted to say Ooh. about the cryo serpent that I thought was uh, relevant in in relation to something that we talked about earlier. A player who had asked about skinning their kills. Oh. They do actually go into the point that if you manage to defeat a cryo serpent and you can skin it for its hide, it can be treated and enchanted and made into a, a, a suit of armor that wakes, makes the wearer resistant to cold. 
So there's even if it has no treasure, which it will have a lot of treasure, but even if it had no treasure, uh, don't forget to skin that cryo serpent when you're done. All right, well, if you want to use it in your campaign, give us a holler, rfistaff at gmail.com, and we want to know what you're doing with your campaign. So, Vince, yeah. did uh, you have any more of those scrolls from last week? Uh, yeah. Actually, uh, I went out today, and I looked on my front steps, and there was another scroll. I couldn't believe it. Well, that's amazing. I know. I am shocked. <laughs> These <laughs> things just keep coming and just keep coming. That hawk came down and must have dropped us off in the present. Uh, let's get but I'm pleasantly it. shocked because I'm very interested to find out exactly what is going on with Thane. You're going to love this. I uh, I had to preview it because, you know, that's just how I am. And I figured, haha, Jason can't hear this. No, but <laughs> <laughs> we're going to play it now for you. So hold on, folks. The morning was gray but warm. There were no towns known for many miles to the north. The unsettled coast promises no safety without weeks of travel. To the west, this land is bordered by the sus forest where elves are known to live. Orcs and goblins earned their hatred long before the arrival of men. I decide to head west until I have the forest in view, and only then turn north toward the object of my quest. For three days I traverse an empty land. I move as fast as I can without exhausting myself. At times, I felt myself followed, yet I saw no one. I lit no fire so that my passage would likely go unnoticed. This land, with care, could be fertile, and here and there I saw evidence that it was once cultivated. A ruined wall here, denoting an old farm now overgrown, or a dwelling abandoned for what looked like a century or more. A faint air of tragedy hovered over the landscape. On the fourth day, my luck changed. The thin wood that had slowly enveloped the country opened up. The land sloped gently down toward a broad stream. In its crook was a farmhouse. I decided to approach. As I passed the fields, I saw that though they were fertile and productive, those closest to the wood were overgrown with weeds. It seemed this farm was wanting for labor. The fields closest to the house were still tended. I stopped at a polite distance and hailed. At length, a young man poked his head out the window. He said nothing, but stared at me grimly, and I let him hold me in his gaze. He asked if the lords had sent me, and whether I had word of his sister's fate. I told him I was from far away, and sought shelter and provision, and knew nothing of this land or its lords, but I could see he felt I was honest. He came to the door and invited me to sit with him. By his movement, I could see he had recently suffered a wound. He told me his name, Deneb. He was perhaps twenty. He soon warmed to me, and seemed well pleased to have a guest from afar. I saw on his mantle a wood carving with a red drop of blood depicted. It cast a foul presence over the room, and I knew it to be a holy symbol. I asked after it, and he said it was the sign of his lords and their god. He was bitter towards his lords. And although this is a common complaint amongst the peasantry in many lands, I inquired after them. I said I would expect that on the frontier he should have some sort of protection. He poured a draft for us both and looked at me with eyes weary for one so young. I asked him, with some presumption, where are the clerics? Where is the local militia? So he explained. 
In the time of his grandparents, the land had been prosperous and secure. But the orcs from the south pressed them, and the lords, through some dark art, had lost the trust of the elves, on whom these men relied. In desperation, the lords had made common cause with some renegade goblins. They tolerated their settlement in the hills to the west. By arousing the goblins against the orcs from the south, the lords were able to hold on to their land. But the lot of the peasantry turned grim. The goblins were cruel. The lords discouraged the use of arms among men so they could grow food for the goblins. Now and then, people disappeared and the goblins were blamed. Soon, the remains of the militia could only do their best to keep the goblins at bay. Yet the lords still took the fruit of their labors and turned it over to the goblins. No one knew if the orcs to the south were still a threat. The lords seemed satisfied to have both men and goblins at their service. It was rumored that in their towers, the lords practiced evil rites to sanctify the blood that was spilled between goblins and men. Deneb's father had been in the militia, but both his father and mother had died of plague some years ago. I knew there was no need to ask after the local clerics and why they did not stop the plague. Deneb's story was not finished, but he lapsed into a silence that felt like a spell was cast on us. He had not spoken again of his sister, but it was clear to me she had been taken recently, and no help was expected from the lords. The sun was setting, and darkness was creeping into the window. I turned to the fireplace and mantle, and I remembered at last what I had learned early in my education at the Temple of Heronius. The meaning of the blood symbol came to me. It was that of Erethnol the Many. The war between men and goblins was his holy work, and their suffering his power. The presence of the blood symbol in the room revolted me. Deneb saw that I was looking at it. I felt the fear he had been living under, and put my hand to my chest and Athanasius's bolt of silver. Our eyes met again. He shuffled to a chest and drew from it a weapon, the short sword that his father had from his time in the militia in the waning days of the safety of men in these lands. The air was thick with Deneb's bitterness. I rose and put my hand on his shoulder. You fought them, I asked, when they took your sister? You're wounded. He nodded and began to cry. I called forth the power of Heronius to heal him of his wound. He looked at me in awe. This, I said to him, is what you are owed by your lords, not the fear you have been living under for so long. I pulled the blood symbol of Arithnal from the wall and threw it on the stone floor. Deneb's eyes were full of fear. I knew he had dreamed of doing this. If the lords returned and saw their symbol defiled, his punishment would be severe. But through his fear, I also felt a righteous hatred. I drew my flail and smashed the blood symbol. He rushed forth and fell to his knees at my feet and picked up a few of the shards, trembling. I knelt next to him and drew forth the silver bolt of Heronius. I opened his hands and he willingly dropped the shards and took up the silver bolt. I threw the shards of the blood symbol into the fire. For a time, we both kneeled there as in prayer. Deneb's father's sword lay before us. I picked it up by the blade. The heat of the fire had warmed it to the touch. He passed the silver bolt back to me and took hold the hilt of the sword. Will you help me avenge my sister against the goblins, he asked. I told him my god, one that would watch over us with blessings and give us strength in battle, would have it no other way. Wow. It's an amazing story that's happening right now. 
I'm I'm getting into this diary that we uh we got going here. I mean, I I thought it was interesting how he was praying to Hieronius to uh, heal his friend. Yeah, it's a really good example of how you know what what a cleric's role is in this world, in this AD and D world, to not only to uh, be a part of the party that is there to you know be the the traveling band aid, but really to be out there proselytizing on behalf of his religion through the things that he does. You know, if you notice in the story that Deneb, the young boy, um, was surprised at the idea that a cleric even did healing, because in his land it was uh, what did he say? Aruthnal, Aruthnal the many was the one that was uh, mm-hmm. worshipped, and and he's as I remember from Greyhawk, he is a god of slaughter, and so his clerics are not going to be out there healing no. the populace. So just by showing that young boy, the difference between what a good deity and an evil deity was like, you know, was obviously was something that brought him into his thrall. So I expect that we will see the two of them uh, off on some adventures. I'm looking forward to hearing what's going to happen next time, but you know what, you're going to have to stay tuned to find out. Even you, Jason, are going to have to stay tuned to find out, too. I, I, I will indeed. Welcome to Playing Tips. Wow, uh, this will bring us to our player tips segment. And uh, what's this segment going to be about? Well, Wish Lady, Wish Lady, grant me a wish. All about wish spells. Casting your wish. Classic. Yeah, so so I was uh, doing a lot of reading up on this because the wish spell is one that sounds from the description like it could be a game changer, literally. Like it could be a campaign changer. But in you're know, reading some of the different uh, things that people talked about and talking to different players, uh, I really saw the different ways that people treat wishes. Now, there, there's two different uh, forms of wish, of course. Uh, there's, there's not just the wish. There's another spell, isn't there? Limited wish? Yeah, limited wish. So uh, do you want to kind of go into the difference between those a little bit before we go on to the other parts of casting a wish? Um, no, they're going to have to flip open the book and find out for themselves. No, I'm okay. kidding. I, I like being mean sometimes, I'm sorry. No, limited wish is not going to give you the full ability of the wish and is a lower level spell. Uh, it's not really going to be a campaign changer, but it will do some minor things. Like, a limited wish will definitely uh, alter some of the future, but nothing major in the future. It might, depending on your DM, maybe you can boost your statistics very temporarily. Uh, it mm-hmm. might you, you get you out of a situation as if you're stuck in a room. Things like that. Nothing really major for a limited wish. Now, going on to the wish, that's where the trouble starts. How do you handle a wish... Uh, I know personally from my campaigns, and I can speak from experience from the past, I used to love this spell. Mm-hmm. Sitting around the table, me and my friends, when we ever got wish spells, it was like, oh, you know, one of those type of things. Mm-hmm. So, and mm-hmm. we had a we had a stickler DM. I mean, I had, when I was growing up, I had the world's, I have to classify him, I will classify him as this, the world's greatest DM. <laughs> the guy's name was Joe, and like me and my friends used to say he was the D&D god. He came down from the, the heavens to teach us D&D, and this guy was amazing at D&D. Like, every time we played, we were captivated, because this guy never used a module. Every adventure was from his mind, and uh, he would just keep us captivated. When he gave us wish spells, he was a very big, he was a stickler. 
mm-hmm. and, uh, spectacular spotlights. We'll t- cover that later. But he was a big stickler with, with wish spells. He had us think of a rule, uh, a lawyer, sorry. I think of a lawyer. He was a big-time lawyer when it comes to this. So if we wished for something, he would put a twist to it. Well, you didn't say this word, or you didn't say that word. I remember one time we were trying to uh, get out of a situation where we had this dragon had us trapped in this cavern, and one of my friends wished, uh, I wish that we were out of this cavern. So he just grinned and said, okay, well, now you're in a, <laughs> you're dangling from a rope on, on a, above, I'm sorry, below is a pit full of spikes. He did things like that to us. That's a really classic way to use wishes. I haven't really used them much in my campaigns, probably because I'm not the D&D god, you know, that, that, <laughs> that Joe was. But um, I think it's a really good way to do it, and it's one of the most fun ways, even for the players, to go through the classic literary moment of being granted a wish and then having that wish interpreted in the most literal way possible. Well, he figured... Um the wish is one of the most powerful items you can have inside the game. So he figured if you're not going to be perfect, 100% clear about it, then you're going to get the twist of fate, as he called it. So one of the things I thought was really interesting about it was that, or a thing that I hadn't thought about, was as I listened to different people talking about how they'd used wishes and raising questions, one of the questions that somebody came up with was, if you wish for a magic item, where does it come from? Mm-hmm. And I was about to dive into that from a just mental perspective, just thinking about it. But then another point came up which completely invalidated that and made me realize that something I will never do in my campaign is allow somebody to wish for a magic item. And the point that this person raised was that there are some things that you can create which actually require a wish spell as part of creating it. And the, okay, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but the golem, somebody wrote in and told me I pronounced it wrong. I think it's golem. Yeah. The golem, it feels weird. I'm going to say golem, and then they can just yell at me later. Anyways, if you're creating a golem, one of the things you need is a wish spell. So if you actually were able to use a wish spell to create things, then why wouldn't you just wish for a golem in the first place? It sort of becomes this circular line of reasoning. So right off the bat, I think that inherently places some limits on the power of a wish spell. I just want to stop for one second here, Jason, and just say pronunciations is all how you were raised in saying things. I mean, people say things differently. Tomato, tomato, kobold, kobold. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the other one? Tiefling, tiefling. I mean, it, it all depends on how I you... I don't even say that word. Excuse me. Don't say that word around me. <laughs> what was that? I, I don't recognize that word. Well, I was just using it as an example. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's all. Okay. So relax. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, continue with your tirade of the wish spell. But anyway, yeah, so so the, the point was that it started getting me thinking about the actual limitations of a wish spell. And if you go back to the ways that magic is said to work in the AD&D world, it's coming as power from the outer planes. It is really, I think, worthwhile to think about if a wish is being granted, where is it coming from? Is it a deity that is providing the wish? Is it coming from a magic item? In which case, how was that wish placed into the item in the first place? And that could give you a lot of clues as a DM as to where the power is coming for that wish, what it's actually capable of doing, and how likely it is that the wish is going to be granted very literally with malicious intent versus being 
given a bit of um, leeway and being granted more with the spirit of what the asker was actually looking for in the first place. Okay. But ultimately, for me, when I think about wishes, I a lot of times when I think about things in an AD&D setting, I think about what would the equivalent be in a literary sense. So when does a wish come into play in a book, for example, or in a, or in a film? And wishes, sometimes they come into play because it's a good way to get the characters in trouble. Yeah. But when it's a good thing, um, if you were to take a wish in a story and just use it as a way to um, create some plot hook that was convenient, your readers had probably grown at that. And so the idea of just uh, changing the course of things with a wish, maybe I think of that kind of similarly in the game fashion. But there are occasions where in a story, it gets to a little bit of a who shot JR kind of moment in the sense that, you know, you wake up, it was all a dream. And oh. I hope I didn't spoil that for anybody that's been in a coma since the 1970s. But the closest example Wait. I could think of right, right off the top of my head was in a book that I'm going to talk about in the library called Night Watch, where it's not a wish that happens, but essentially it gets to a point in the story where there is such a massive tragedy about to occur and really as a reader you've loved these characters for a long time and you don't want it to happen to them either that some magic occurs that it's not a wish in the book but it's sort of similar to how a wish is used in the game mm -hmm. so I think a really appropriate use of a wish in the game and this is another one that some people had described was if you get to a point where you've done something in the in the part in the game in the campaign in the in the in the fighting or whatever that's going on that just was so catastrophic or you had such an amazingly terrible set of die rolls that you're about to get a total party kill or you're about to lose some immensely important thing. I think that's a point where you might wish to go back in time one hour or something like that. Those kind of wishes as a DM, I think I'd be very uh, happy to grant, whereas the kind of wishes... I would like to have an entire nation at my command. The greed and the avarice-related wishes, I think I would be less happy to just hand out. Uh, yeah, that, I, would, I would agree with that, definitely. Um, I usually, when I had done a wish spell in my game recently, I had the players actually write it out on a piece of paper so they were clear with what their intent of the wish was. Yeah, I think a lot of players who, if they've encountered a, a stickler DM, would probably do that anyway, just because they would know that you'd be listening for that little wrong word. Well, you're the DM. You decide what to do. Um, so if you do have a player that wishes for those uh, a sword plus five, well, you have to decide a couple things when that happens. Are you going to say that the sword just magically creates itself and the heavens gives it to you? Or does it come off that evil black knight that's been, you know, stalking the land, killing people when he doesn't really notice you because you're so low, low, low in level? Well, I mean, first of all, if, if one of my players actually wished for a plus five sword, I would just let that wish be wasted because to their player, to the characters, they plus five doesn't mean anything. So personally, I would just rule that they had just wasted a, uh, 
wish and they would just find a sword that was called plus five. It was just called that, like you call a sword Guinevere. Um, exactly. But yeah, if, if, if somehow they managed to word their wish in such a way that it would enable them to acquire an object, I think... I probably yeah I probably would have that object actually it wouldn't pop into existence in my world it would have to come it would have to already be somewhere either they would have to go and get it or one suggestion that somebody had which I thought was awesome was have the item appear with its owner ooh that's even better <laughs> so good luck here's your here's your vorpal blade um and here's the demon who owns it yikes Okay, and uh, if you have any experiences with a wish spell, we'd like to hear it. Tell us how you use your wish spell. Tell us if you are a stickler with the wish spell, having people write it down, or if I staff at gmail.com. And Jason and I will read your adventures and laugh and respond to them as quick as possible. As the party enters the last space inside the cave, a treasure can be seen to stretch as far as the eye can see. Beware, as you have just entered the Dragon's Horde. So, Jay, what do we have this week in the Dragon's Horde? Well, the Dragon's Horde is going back uh, back to about 1980 again, Ooh. and this is something that Ed Greenwood put in Dragon Magazine. It's a classic of Arthurian literature, the Singing Sword. Oh, I've heard about this. Uh, isn't it a sword that sings uh, pop rock? Yes, it's actually it sings mostly uh, power ballads, uh, you know, sort of a oh. lot of White Snake, and Manowar? I think it's particularly fond of the Scorpions. I heard it was fond of uh, fond of Manowar, so that's yeah. There's that's it depends which singing sword you get. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, the singing sword is an awesome one because it's 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 a classic moment of power and fun. The it's it's a silver. Uh, Bastard sword or hand and a half sword, mm. the you know just the classic sort of sword that you'll see in the sword and sorcery uh, legends where you can carry it with one hand, carry it with two hands, etc. And what is special about it, of course, is that when it's drawn from its scabbard, it will sing constantly and loudly. <laughs> it does it does a lot of good things. It's it's plus three sword. It uh, prov- provides confidence and excitement to the wielder, so you never have to check morale. It provides the wielder with immunity to charm, command, fear, confusion, friends, repulsion, scare, suggestion, all sorts of uh, mind-affecting spells. It can shrill a shrieker. It can negate a harpy's harp. Um, <laughs> it, it, the, the singing is, while it's pretty hard to be subtle when you draw this it certainly has a lot of positive effects hmm. uh, the negative side of it of course Seems. is that it's very easy to counter simply with a silence spell uh, you could also if this is where bards come into play a bard can actually counter its effects simply by playing a counter harmony hmm and uh, people have to make a saving throw, otherwise they will fall to a suggestion spell of equal type. Uh, the sword's, you know, the sword, the person who bears the sword. Yeah, any, any, um, it says here, any intelligent creatures uh, that's up to two hit dice yeah. uh, will be entranced by this. So the singing sword, I think this would be an ideal treasure if you are playing in a campaign with some very theatrical people. Uh, I would actually, if if 
I were playing in a group like this and I had decided to give this to someone, I think I would make sure that the player whose character got it was the most musical. I'd really like to require them to sing the song <laughs> while they were doing it. Uh, this I could see this being really funny, having the player sing the song, and then I could just see them accidentally forgetting that the song sings and they're creeping up in that cave. That monster has his back turned. They pull it out and it's... <laughs> and the monster's like... <laughs> and turning around, right? You know, just, I just think of the possibilities of how much fun you can have with that sword. Oh, man. There's there's a, a Bugs, Bugs Bunny cartoon oh. of uh, Bugs Bunny and King Arthur's Court. And I, the singing sword in that is the singing sword that I would probably try to go find a sound sample of to uh, keep while this was going on. Oh, awesome. Uh, the best the, the best thing I think I would do with a singing sword, though, is in terms of when the party first finds it. It would definitely be somewhere that they would need to be very, very quiet so that when they find this treasure, if they go ahead and pull it out of the scabbard at that moment, it would ruin everything they had just tried to sneak around for. All around, this sword is going to be a lot of fun. It should give you some good laughs and definitely... Like Jason said, have your player act out some of the things. Could be fun, you know. Try it. See what yeah. See what happens. Give us so an email. So hopefully someone will use the singing sword and let us know how it is. RFI staff at gmail dot com. Sticklers spotlight. Now we're entering the sticklers spotlight, and we have this week. Casting times. We all know that you have your magic user and uh, cleric and cast spells, even druids too, and mm-hmm. uh, rangers at higher levels can cast spells. So uh, basically, in this segment, we're going to go over those things that say casting time next to the spell. It's not just a number that you just go meh when you see it. It actually does come into play for a lot of things inside combat. So, um, Jason, you're more of a little more of a stickler when it comes to uh, combat and casting times, as you have that nice whiteboard that you put a wonderful picture of, which is great. It really looks cool, by the way. Oh, cool! I'm glad you're able to to see that and check it out. Yeah, you can go to the website and check that out, folks, too, if you haven't already. But uh, when you in combat, how do you handle your spells? So the thing about spells is that, especially uh, in first edition AD and D. They are so powerful. Uh, somebody who's used to having powers and feats might uh, look at them first and say, well, you only get to do this once, uh, so what's so powerful about it? But keep in mind that there's no escaping most spells. I mean, sure, you might get a saving throw against it, but if you really look, once you, especially once you get to the higher level stuff, uh, they're just massively powerful things. And so a lot had to be done to ensure that these huge sources of power didn't completely overwhelm the game. And so one of the things that the creators put into all of this was the idea of the components, of course, but also the spell casting time. And this is really important because, so like you said, I I actually do a segment of action approach, which is... uh, essentially just means that I actually keep track of what segment anything occurs on. So keeping in mind the idea that a melee round is not a single hit-you-hit 
type of approach, but it's the whole parry and thrust, etc. There's also other things that take time within that minute, and one of them is casting. So if a spell has a casting time of three segments, that would be uh, 18 seconds, and that means that that's the time that the spellcaster has to go through all of the somatic motions, the hand motions that they're doing. Uh, if there's a material component, uh, it's consumed during that time. If there, well, there is a verbal component. There's, I think there's almost always a verbal component. That's how long it takes to actually say the words of the spell. And that's a very dangerous time for the spellcaster because if they're interrupted during that casting, then they're going to be unable to complete the spell and they will lose it for the day. That Ooh. spell, as soon as they begin to speak the words, it erases from their memory and they have to hope they get to the end. So it's a really good way to ensure that you don't just have a wizard who's wandering through the countryside shooting <laughs> balls out of his, fire out of his fingers and Ooh. destroying the populace. I mean, he, can a he can actually have weaknesses as well. Uh, so, so spellcasting times are something that I really do uh, stick very closely to. And, and it's also particularly interesting when you get to the higher level spells, you start getting to things that are very long. Um, so you get to the point where something like a, a very high level illusionist spell, astral spell, takes three turns to cast, meaning that's half an hour. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, of course, uh, this is a, a clerical spell also, uh, now that I think about it. But but essentially, the point is that when you're doing something that is incredibly uh, huge in its consequences, like traveling to another astral plane, it shouldn't be a matter of snapping your fingers and ta-da, it's happened. It actually brings a whole set of realism into the game, well... Realism, as far as magic it can be, but 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 you get where I'm going with this. The idea is that you don't have people who just have superpowers. You have people who actually have to do certain things in order to cause that effect to occur. Right. All right. Well, um, I'd like to hear how everyone does their combat. Mine is pretty much simple. I'm just going to add the segment to the die roll for the group, and I'm going to work from there. And I'll determine when the time comes that their spell was interrupted by what was attacking them, and usually most creatures will figure out to attack a spellcaster after the first or second time being wailed with that magic missile or, you know, whatever else equivalent. So. Yeah, but I think, well, let's take an example here. Let's take Magic Mouth, okay. um, which I actually would have to flip to quickly to find out the ex complete details of it. But Magic, so I'm looking for the casting time on this while we speak, but I, I won't bother. Uh, but the, the point is that you know, Magic Mouth allows you to enchant some area with the ability to uh, cause a voice to emanate from that object. And if a Magic user decides during combat that they're going to use that spell, and I can think of a lot of reasons to do it. You could use it for uh, a simple distraction. Uh, you could use it to try to actually convince the other party the monsters to do something in particular. Uh, I can think of casting magic mouth in this on one of the actual uh, monsters so that you sow discord within the party, sort of like Jason and the Argonauts with the dragon's teeth. Right. So if you're going to do something like that, you not only have to know how long it's going to take to cast the spell as to whether it can be interrupted or not, but you'll want to know exactly where during that round of combat the magic mouth started to speak. So... 
you would want to know the actual casting time as well as what segment it actually began on so that you'd know whether it affected anything that those monsters were doing during that round. That's interesting. Also, I'm thinking about Magic Mouth. Speaking of that spell, I'm, I'm thinking like your party's running away from a bunch of guards. You're about, you know, a couple steps ahead of them. You have your mage cast, um, your magic, excuse me, cast a spell, Magic Mouth on the wall, just to distract the guards for enough time for you guys to get away. But, you know, since you're in the middle of a run, sequence, combat thing, that's when this is going to come into play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a per- it's a great example. Um, I'm looking at another one right now, Ice Storm, which takes four segments to cast. So if you if you need to create an Ice Storm, I mean, that has both practical or combat uh, uses in lots of different ways. And so the moment that the ice actually starts to fall, uh, I think, is pretty important to what happens uh, in the round. So I would encourage anybody not to uh, forsake casting times or to, to, to play it fast and loose, but to actually try to keep track of where these things are happening because it can add a whole other level um, to, the, to what's actually going on. Now, when you play your uh, segments, uh, Jason, let's say you're, let's take that Ice Storm, for example, four segments, right? Mm-hmm. Now, let's say that your spellcaster starts casting it, and mm-hmm. boom, the party's fighting, boom, boom, and they want him killing the creature, and then boom, it goes to his segment. You let him waste the spell, or do you give him the opportunity to negate it so he doesn't lose it? No, no, absolutely. The, the, if, if he, whatever the players declare they're going to do during that round is what they're going to do during that round. So the whole idea of initiative is just those little bits of luck as to, well, I mean, they're luck that are obviously uh, um, affected by other things that can affect your initiative. But if you begin to swing a sword, it's very similar to if you begin to cast a spell, you really don't get a chance to catch yourself and go, oh, I see that he's dead now, I'm going to not bother trying to do this. And that's really, to me, the big advantage of doing a combat system where everybody announces their intentions before you roll the initiative, because it keeps people from getting into that kind of chess mode, where they're moving pieces around square by square, and they're carefully... Uh, trying to decide what action they're going to do based on, you know, what happened in the other person's turn. Because if you, if, you, if you allow a person to, uh, to do that, then what you start doing is you start getting into a version of combat where it literally is taking turns. True. So I think it's much, important, much more important that, the, uh, that everything is kind of happening at once so that that way it's not really so much a question of uh, waiting to see what the Noel's going to do, as it is a question of seeing whether you managed to get your action in before he did. And, mm-hmm. and, and the last thing I'll say about it is that it counterbalances one of the inherent issues with a tabletop role-playing game, which is that you can't actually have everything happen in real time because the players are taking time to think about what it is that they want to do, uh, to describe what they're doing, to look up rules, all those kind of things, which, you know, it's part of the fun. Um, but if you're doing that, you need to somehow keep it from turning into a complete chess game. So by playing it this way, you get some of the unpredictability and the sort of action that you would get from a real-time you know, which, of course, you, know, you could play a video game, you could go LARPing, 
but if you're playing first edition AD&D, that's not what you're here for. You're here to play a tabletop role-playing game. But by doing it this way, you actually manage to keep that excitement and that back and forth of a real combat situation. Well, the reason why I had brought that up and asked, because my former DM, Mr. Joe, God of DMs, Mm-hmm. Uh, actually used, gave us a chance to save the spell because uh, we know how crappy we most of us played, so he gave us a chance. He started it, and this is kind of interesting because this is his own homebrew rule, and you don't have to use it, and you can say it's stupid or whatever, not you personally, people out there. He started at 30% chance, and depending mm-hmm. on the spell level, he minus 2% from it. So if you rolled underneath that percent modifier, you had a chance to save the spell. That was his method. Yeah. I think that's a pretty realistic, um, or not realistic, but reasonable yeah. um, rule to have. I mean, maybe you could base it on dexterity, or yeah. you could, or something like that. You know, so yeah, I, I don't know exactly how I'd play it. And and you know, ultimately, the the goal of the game is to be having the most fun that you can. Yeah. So you know, if it if it's if it's something that makes the game more fun. Uh, then yeah, I, I can I can see a reason for it, but I definitely wouldn't just uh, automatically say, well, you know that, that that he's dead already. So do you want to not cast the spell? True, I'm uh, I just you know it's a good optional rule for first edition for your campaign. Yeah. If yeah. you guys have any optional rules for yourself, give us an email and we will look them over and comment on them. And now for our final segment of the show, uh, we go to the library. Ooh. Yeah, and this week in the library, I'm, I'm, I already sort of intimated to the fact that I was going to talk about Nightwatch, but what I wanted to talk about this time was not just one book, but a whole world. Oh. So, uh, you know, we talked before, you and I, and I think you said that you haven't uh, jumped into the disc world. Yes. No, 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 not at all, really. Um, well, well. So the Discworld is a series of so far thirty-seven novels uh, that have been around. Yeah, they've been around since 1983. They're by Terry Pratchett. Uh, I believe he's still the UK's best-selling author. I don't even think that J.K. Rowling was able to catch up with him. Not yet. And uh, absolutely, absolutely one of my favorite authors of all time. I um, first found out about him because I was doing an interview with Neil Gaiman uh, for my old magazine, and we were talking about people like P.G. Woodhouse and uh, Douglas Adams, and he brought up Terry Pratchett because Neil Gaiman has actually written a book with Terry Pratchett called Good Omens and explained that this is somebody who's writing in this very uh, traditional English humorist vein that P.G. Woodhouse started, this vein of satire and parody, but not ridiculous humor. I mean, with a real serious underpinning. I mean, much like Douglas Adams would write about uh, science fiction, but with a humorous side to it, although it was obvious that he loved science fiction and knew the world inside and out and had very serious points to make, Terry Pratchett's sort of that way with fantasy. And a lot of people who are listening right now who are already Terry Pratchett fans know all of this already, so they, I'm not telling anybody anything new. Uh, but what's great about Terry Pratchett's books is that the majority of them are set within a world called the Discworld. Okay. So I, I, I mentioned before that there's uh, 
you know, if, if you're going to have an Arctic land that will have uh, uh, night tw- for 24 hours or day for 24 hours, you're assuming that you're on a globe that's tilted like the Earth. Uh, in this world, as you can tell by the name, they're not. They're actually on a flat Earth or a flat world. It's a disc, and the disc is carried on the back of four elephants, and those four elephants ride on a turtle, the great Atuin, who rides, through, who swims endlessly through the universe. And uh, each one of these books is set primarily around the central city of Ankh-Morpork, although they also go out to Lanker, which is, um, I guess, might be a pun on Lancashire. I'm not really sure. I'm obviously not English, so I'm not going to make too many presumptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, I mean, even if you're not English, you're, which I'm not, you're going to get all the jokes. There's not, except for the occasional Morris dancing reference, which you can look up, there's not really too much to worry about there. And uh, in Nightwatch, which was one that came out in 2002, this is one of my favorite uh, books of all time by Terry Pratchett. It's one of my favorite books, but it's also one of my favorite Terry Pratchett books. Uh, I would not recommend for somebody who's never read any of Terry Pratchett's work to start this late in the series. You're not going to miss anything, but uh, what happens is it's centered around uh, one of my favorite characters from any literary time, which is uh, Sam Vimes. And at this point, he has already reached a certain level in his career that uh, he is, he's a duke, and uh, you're going to miss out on a lot of you know, seeing him come up so that when they actually go back to the young Sam Vimes, uh, as he's caught in a magic storm and goes back to his youth, uh, you know, you really just get such a, uh, a joy or a, a pleasure out of going back to that time when it's somebody that you already know. Uh, I, I'm not going to go too much into the plot of that one because this isn't really meant to be a review of any particular book. What it's more is is a look for me at how you can take literary influences into game worlds. And Discworld has done that literally also. Uh, Steve Jackson Games publishes, well, I think they still publish, a, a GURPS role-playing game, a Discworld RPG. And, you know, I don't know if you know GURPS, if you've ever played any yes, I have. of those systems. Okay, great. Then you already know how to play it. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it was the first universal role-playing system. Before there was D20, there was GURPS. And the Discworld role-playing game, I have never played... And every time I go to a convention, I try to get in on a table, and I'm too late because it's so popular. Huh. And uh, the last time I went to Gen Con, I actually managed to buy a ticket and get into a Discworld game, and then the Game Master didn't show up. Oh. So I know, so please, if somebody's listening and you play Discworld and you live in Manhattan or Brooklyn or close enough, I'll totally come and play in your game. It would be a lot of fun. Um but if if you uh, if you want to bring Discworld stuff into AD and D, it's completely possible. Uh, not so much in the sense of bringing any of the rules or anything like that, because you don't really need to. But just in the sense of being able to bring a sense of humor into the game without bringing silliness. Uh, some of my favorite stuff about it is I do kind of turn to Terry Pratchett sometimes when it comes to inspiration for naming characters. Uh, I'm just going to give you, just as a flavor for some of the books, I'll give you some of the names of some of the people in here. Okay. Uh, one of the most famous characters is CMOT Dribbler, or Cut Me Own Throat Dibbler, who 
yeah, he's the one that's always he's always out selling sausages or anything else he can get his hands on, and his name comes from the fact that he's selling it to you at five pence, and that's a price that's cutting me on throat. Wow. So he's cut me on throat, Dibbler. Uh, you have a constable in the city watch who is a great proselytizer <laughs> of his god. His name is Constable Visit, and that is short for Constable Visit the Infidel with Explanatory Pamphlets. Uh, you have, um, let's see, who are some of the other really great ones? I mean, you know, you, you just did day-to-day names that are still good, like Ponder Stibbins and Rincewind, the the, uh, the cowardly wizard. Uh, the um, does he have Weatherwax a, wi- wiz- Yes. Does he have a website we can go to and check all this out, or if 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 you, I'll, I'll put a few notes, uh, a few links in the show notes. But there's just an in, you type in Discworld and you'll just open yourself up to a huge infinite universe of fans. There's the L space uh, because in the Discworld, the library itself is said to exist in L space or library space, which means it has so many dimensions that all books are in some way or another connected to every other book in every dimension. So the librarian of the Unseen University, which is where all the wizards are, um, who many years ago was turned into an orangutan and refuses to let anybody turn him back, uh, is the only one that can actually navigate the L space. You kind of see where this is going. Now, is this in any relation to the PlayStation game that came out many years ago? I actually don't know. Um, oh. I, I'm a terrible video game player. Oh. I I lose at Pong, <laughs> so I just I've never owned a PlayStation. It might be, so I'd like to find out. Huh? Uh, there there have been knows. a number of movies. There's been a radio series done of it. There've been some kind of not so good animated series based on it. I didn't like them as much, but recently there's been some great. Uh, made-for-television movies getting released over in the UK with uh, some actors that I'm a big fan of, including Nigel Planer from The Young Ones. So, uh, you know, if it's something that you are, if you enjoy the fun side of fantasy and and uh, the humor side of it, it's a world that you're not really going to ever get tired of or ever run out of space in. Okay, so five out of um, how many stars? I don't even I don't wouldn't even ascribe stars to this. It would be unfair to the stars. <laughs> so Jason gives it a undetermined amount of stars. Pick it up and you decide for yourself. If you have read this book or are reading this book or would like to read this book and you're you know, glancing at it, tell us what you think. RFI staff at gmail dot com. Well, Jay, you know what this means? We're wrapping up another show. It's the end of another week. Well, that's four episodes in the uh, the bag. That's that's pretty good, don't you think? That's excellent. I'm glad I'm glad that we've uh, been able to make it this far, and I think we'll keep on going for quite a while. Well, they thanks uh, thanks everybody who's encouraged us. <laughs> Definitely, all the feedback is wonderful. Well, they do say that this is when podcasts fall apart after episode four and five. Most podcasts don't last around, but we will prevail. We will be around. <laughs> thanks for jinxing it. Excellent. Now. <laughs> There's some rules in podcasting, and they say after pod, most of them fall apart in five, and then after ten is when most people take you serious. So we're going to be at episode this time next year, what, 100? No, I'm kidding. Yeah, great. So we can keep on screwing around until we get to ten, because you don't have to worry about taking us seriously yet. Yeah, exactly. This is <laughs> We're going to sign off this week. This is DM Vince, and... This is DM Jason. Saying, keep it old school, keep it original.
Roll for initiative. <laughs> 